The motto of the Australian Army Intelligence Corps is forewarned, forearmed. Since 1907, the members of the Corps have served by providing information about topography, enemy or foreign power positions and tactics to help uh, the Army in the planning of attacks and defences. You might know the, the motto better along the saying, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Well, here in Matthew 24, Jesus warns the disciples about the future. Uh, he's going to go away, and he's going to go away for a while, so he needs them to have realistic expectations so that they're going to respond successfully to the challenges they'll face in the time that he's away. Now, you get a hint that the disciples' expectations are for something big and glorious, ease and not challenges, from verse 3 of our passage in Matthew 24. So Jesus is walking away from the temple. He says to the disciples, you see all this? This is all going to fall down. This is all going to be destroyed. That's verse 2. And then verse 3 they come to him and say, tell us when this will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. They want to know when Jesus is going to take up this throne and bring in the kingdom of God, having judged evil and injustice and vindicated his favourite people. When will that be? And you can see what's going through their heads. Their leader is the future king of the whole world and they're expecting to benefit big time from being one of his sub subjects. So when will it happen? Well, problem. Their expectations are all wrong. Jesus knows he isn't going to bring the kingdom in overnight, not even immediately after his resurrection. So he needs to hose down their expectations with a healthy realism, heavily spiced with warnings. Effectively, he's creating new expectations for his disciples and for us, their 21st century descendants. So let's quickly look at each expectation they must have that, for the most part, we must have. The first one is expect fake messiahs to come. They need to be realistic that Jesus isn't coming in a hurry and so they shouldn't be taken in by anyone else who comes in and claims to be the Messiah. So verse 4 of our passage, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and will deceive many. In the first century, there were many who came and claimed to be the Messiah and to be the one to lead the Jews to freedom from their Roman oppressors. And of course, each time it was mighty clear that they weren't the Messiah as the man and his followers were crushed by the Romans. The Christians are not to be taken in in a similar way. They're not to be taken in by someone who comes saying they've got a special link with God and maybe backs it up with impressive miracles. At this point, I want to look at a similar thing Jesus says along these lines at verse 24 of Matthew 24. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, so even the Christians. He's warning that's going to happen and he's saying, don't be deceived, even by leaders who perform spectacular miracles. 
When Jesus returns, verse 27, it'll be clear and unmissable. For as lightning comes from the east, is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus' return to earth will be public and unquestionable. Like lightning, Jesus will be visible everywhere. Now at this point, sort of to back up his uh, point, Jesus adds a parable which no one understands and it is the first of three. You get three this week of three things that make you go, hmm, verses in chapter 24. It's verse 28. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. What does that mean? Well, I think in a commentary I was reading, they listed the six ideas and they were, some of them were wild. It just shows you that it's not one of the clearest verses for people. But I think what it is is just as vultures don't miss the roadkill, then no one's going to miss the appearance of Jesus when he comes. But fake messiahs, fake prophets, they'll come. So be careful. Don't trust everyone who sets themselves up as a Christian leader. Observe closely and judge his or her teaching and character against the Bible. Does he point you to serve Jesus or himself? Does she seek to profit from you or serve you? That's the first thing. You've got to expect false teachers, false messiahs, false prophets. They also have to expect the bad things in the world to continue. And that's the second point. The next realistic expectation Jesus wants them to ex- is to have is to expect bad things in the world. Verse 6, you'll hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Don't be so alarmed by the bad things of our world that you think the world is ending or God is not in control. In verse 7, Jesus adds bad things with more natural causes like famines and earthquakes. And if he was speaking today, he might say killer viruses. During this year, there'd be many who've wondered if even God is in control of COVID-19. We know he is, which is why we pray, because we know that the Lord's mastery of the universe is comprehensive. Nothing is out of his control. Ashley says in the Bible, I love this verse in Isaiah 45, He actually brings prosperity and creates disaster. God God is in control. We can't see why he's allowing it to be what it is. But until Jesus returns and brings in the kingdom of peace and blessing, we should expect bad things to keep happening in our world and to ourselves. They're not the end of the world. They're just evidence that our world needs a king, which is why we pray Your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. But in verse 8, Jesus gives hope. They are not the end. They are just like birth pains. They'll end in something good, just like birth pains end in a child. The bad things that take place in our world are the birth pains of a world in distress till the coming of her Messiah. So don't be shaken in your faith because there's bad and hard things in the world. Jesus knew, Jesus predicted that there would be. But as you uh, live out your life in this world, in this sometimes hard world, 
as a follower of Jesus, there's an extra thing, and that is expect persecution. It's particularly important to get a right expectation of the world's attitude to the people of the king while he is absent. The disciples shouldn't be surprised if they're rejected or mocked or even killed. In other, in other words, if they experience persecution for following Christ. It's verse 9. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Notice it's because of Christ. It's because of their allegiance to him. Not that they were just a pain to get on with. That they're persecuted. We shouldn't be surprised by the fact of persecution of brothers and sisters in the overtly persecuted churches around the world, nations around the world, and that's why we pray for their strengthening and try to help them out materially. But it's now true that in the previously low persecution countries of the West, there's also greater overt hostility towards Christians. We shouldn't be surprised by this because it's following the trend Jesus predicted in verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. As our world increasingly turns away from God, then there is pressure, as Queen and David Bowie sang, pressure As more people turn away from God and reject his ways, the pressure on Christians is greater. And sadly, Jesus predicts we'll see the love of most grow cold. I don't like that word most there. I wish it was the love of some. Sadly, Jesus is predicting that believers will turn away from their love for God or Christ. But let that not be us. Since we're forewarned here, Let us be like verse 13, the one who stands firm to the end and is saved. It will be hard at times. It is hard at times. You know that. But it will be worth it in the end when we're saved from the world and enjoy the blessings of the king and his kingdom in eternity. Jesus wants us to be realistic about persecution and not to be surprised by it. Persecution comes because of the other thing we should expect to happen, the next thing we should expect to happen in this time while Jesus is away. And and that's in verse 14. Something much more positive. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end Will come. There is an end in sight, but not straight away. And one of the reasons for the not straight away is that first, as you see there, the gospel must be proclaimed to the whole world. If the disciples thought that becoming a follower of the king meant that they were soon going to be able to put up their feet in debt chairs by the heavenly river, they need to get put straight. This time of waiting for the king and the kingdom to come is the time for gospel proclamation so that believers can be strengthened and people can come to believe in Christ for the first time. Of course, it is because of that gospel proclamation 
that the persecution we've just been looking at is attracted. If we just kept quiet about Christ, people wouldn't care. While we wait, it's then so appropriate that our church vision urges us to be dedicated to sharing the gospel with all fresh water so that people will encounter, believe and grow in Jesus. And of course, through our mission partners, we too are involved in the gospel going out to all nations, to Uruguay through the Woolmers, in Chile through Bato and Dagma and their churches, in Anglican aid water, aid water projects we've supported in Africa, in Lightning Ridge with Kurt and Beck Langmead and their church, in the Northern Beaches Hospital with the chaplain Lisa Boyd, and in our local high schools through Anchor RE, as we prayed just this morning with Rob, and as we heard uh, last week uh, at Freshwater Surf Club through Andrea Bohm and Mark Gilbert's chaplaincy ministry. We're involved in that work, and we should expect to be involved in that work as God gives us gifts of energy and time and skill and money until Christ returns. Fundamentally, if I, if I was to ask you what is your life about, you might say, if you have children, raising my family to be responsible citizens in our world, to be independent, responsible citizens. Yeah. You might say, uh, working to, uh, and living in a sustainable way so as to uh, our to preserve our environment and not make uh, an unhealthy impact on it. You, you might say, uh, I've worked hard, it's, it's to enjoy my retirement. All those things are true, but they're not the biggest truth. The biggest truth is, uh, as a Christian, God hasn't sent Jesus back yet because the gospel must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth and we all have a role in it. And this year, I've observed that Christ is building his church through us here at St Mark's. Despite the challenges of ministry in this COVID-19 season, people are encountering and believing in Christ. We have new members in Christ in our church because of uh, proclaiming the gospel this year, and people are growing. So that's exciting, isn't it? We're doing what we're meant to be doing in this time until Christ returns. Well, the next thing uh, Jesus tells them to expect, uh, you could almost think, what are we talking about this for? Because it's about something that happened about 35 years after Jesus was speaking. 30, about 35 years after Jesus was speaking, Jerusalem was overrun by Roman soldiers as Jerusalem was sacked following a Jewish rebellion and an extended four-year siege. That's what Jesus warns his disciples about from verses 15 to 21. It's a past event, so uh, it doesn't have ongoing application to us, unlike the other expectations in Matthew 24. So I'm not going to spend much time other than to note two things. The first is another of our things that make you go, hmm, verses. Verse 15, when you see standing in the holy place the ab the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Of the three especially difficult to understand verses in Matthew 24 today, this to me gets the medal because I read, let the reader understand and immediately exclaim, well, this reader doesn't understand. 
actually, what does it mean? I think it means let the reader of the book of Daniel understand. In other words, if you want to, if you can work out what Daniel is talking about, you can work out what verse 15 is about. And, and verse 15, uh, sorry, the book of Daniel talks about an abomination that causes desolation. And then when you read it, it's about a ruler who comes and does horrible things to the temple in Jerusalem. And we know historically that in 168 BC, a Greek ruler, Antiochus IV, set up an altar to Zeus in the temple of Israel's God and sacrificed pigs on it and then outlawed Judaism. So he couldn't really go much further, really, than uh, abomination that caused desolation. But how does that apply in Jesus' time? Because he grabs that phrase from Daniel of something that's already happened. So it's obviously not happening now. Well, I reckon what it is, is uh, as you read around those verses, and, and the next verse he's going to say, when you see it, run, leave Judea. Probably what he's looking for too is in 35 years' time, he's predicting the time in 35 years when this big Jewish revolt occurs against the Romans. It's from AD 66 to 70 and it culminates in the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem by the armies of Rome. And the abomination that causes desolation, I think, is like the Roman armies trampling all over the temple and desolating it. The other interesting thing to, to note about Jesus' words of forewarning here is the command to flee when you see the abomination that causes desolation. I'm thinking you see the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem in the siege. It's time to run. It's not time to stay in Jerusalem. We know that in that, that siege and, the, and then the and the. Uh, sacking of Jerusalem, many, many Jewish lives were lost, first by the famine in the siege and then by the sword. But we also know that two years before the end of that siege, in about 68 AD, the Christians all left. The Christians all left Jerusalem and escaped. And it seems that somebody was paying attention to Jesus' warning and decided it's time to flee. Well, let's get back to something that uh, applied to them and applies to us today, and it comes in verse 27 to 31. Expect the true Messiah to come. We saw earlier in, when we glanced at verses 27 that Jesus made the point that when he comes, it'll be obvious to all. And now Jesus really creates an expectation for his disciples and us. He promises that after all this distress, false messiahs, wars and natural disasters, gospel preaching, persecution, and that particular great distress of the fall of Jerusalem and its temple, after all that, he will come. His coming will be good for some and a cause of great anguish and regret for others. In other words, the king will judge who are his followers. So he picks up a couple of quotes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah there at verse 29, which is from a context involving judgment on the nations who opposed Israel's king, and he applies that to his coming at verse 30. 
verse 30, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. You see, on the one hand, there's going to be judgment and on and mourning and on the other hand, there's going to be vindication and salvation for those others who are gathered in. The king they've been waiting on has arrived. The king has returned. And the disciples' sometimes stressful life is replaced by a new expectation of blessing under the king's good rule. Now that is worth waiting for. But we are still waiting. So how long must we wait? And that's the final point. They obviously have to wait for him to come. But how long? Well, Jesus doesn't say, but what he does say is intriguing. Verse 32. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer's near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. The new leaves of the fig tree signal that summer is near. Similarly, all these things, the the false teachers, the wars and natural disasters, the persecution of Christians in the midst of gospel preaching, all those, he says, are a signal, these things are a signal that the return of Christ is near, right at the door, which is kind of saying that Jesus' return is near at any time because all these things occurred in the lives of the first disciples and they're still occurring today, which is kind of dissatisfying, isn't it? Uh, He's saying that you see all these things happening is a sign that I'm near, but he hasn't come. The bottom line for us, I think, in this is keep on going Living in the stress, looking expectantly for his, turn, his return, knowing things aren't out of control. Yeah, bad things happen in the world. Persecution happens in the world. But he predicted that was going to happen. It's part of what's meant to happen in this time. We trust our daily lives to his care and we look for him to come back, which can be really hard when he hasn't returned for so long. And and we're going to look uh, in two weeks' time at what Jesus has to say about waiting in the rest of this chapter and chapter 25. But it brings us to our last things that make you go hmm verse today at verse 34. Because Jesus says, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, there's a promise for the original disciples. Their generation would not die until all these things have happened. And people have read that over the years and said, how can this be? Jesus obviously hasn't returned. How can he say that? Well, he's not talking about his return. He's talking about all these things. He's talking about the distresses, the false teaching, the persecution, the bad things in our world of of famine and wars and preaching Imagine he especially was including the fall of Jerusalem at the time he was speaking because it happened 35 years later. And so for that generation, 
when that happened, we can imagine a number of them were alive if they hadn't been martyred. But after all that comes a surprise. Verse 36, Jesus didn't actually know the day of his return. Verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I wonder if Jesus knows it now, given he's up with his Father in heaven. When I first read that verse 36, I felt that Jesus had been a bit mean, sort of dangling the carrot through this whole chapter. You thought he was going to give it, and then suddenly pulling it behind his back. But then I realised that he told the disciples in verse 14, then the end will come after the gospel's been preached and after the temple was destroyed, uh, after the temple would, would be destroyed. So he has sort of shared when, hasn't he, in a qualitative way rather than an exact day. And I guess it's God's call as to when he thinks the gospel's been sufficiently preached to the nations. The, Peter writes in 2 Peter that God's actually holding up the return of Christ so more people can hear the gospel and believe, which makes Jesus' directions for life in this time all the more precious. Expect false messiahs. Expect, don't be surprised by wars and natural disasters. Gospel proclamation amidst persecution until an unmistakable return. I guess that's all we need to expect because that's all we need to know. Let me pray.